My name is Barry Latucci. I teach history at Harvard's College in Brooklyn and part of City University of New York. Um, my presentation today is to give an overview of the history of fascism in the Ukraine and uh, to show that it is an indigenous, it is now very much an indigenous movement, a part of a long history in the Ukraine, sponsored both by German imperialism and American imperialism for their own purposes. But actually, the history is even broader than that. And I think one of the things that is really uh, that I'm going to really try to bring out is the fact that uh, the United States has done a terrific job from the point of view of the CIA and, and US uh, history, in, or US imperialism, from the imperialist point of view, of promoting fascism and keeping it alive and uh, allowing it to uh, reestablish itself in the 21st century in the Ukraine. Uh, far, I would say that uh, U.S. promotion of, of fascism and has been more successful even than uh, German Nazi imperialism was. Uh, well, let me, let me start at the beginning. In the beginning, Ukrainians and Russians were one people, united by a common language, a common religion, a common state, a common culture, common territory, and a common history. The first Russian state, as many of you know, was Kievan Rus, established in 860 in the Common Era, lasting until the 1240s. During this time, there was no distinction between Ukrainians and Russians, uh, that, as there should not be today. Kievan Rus territories extended from the western Carpathian Mountains, which today uh, are a border between the Ukraine and Slovakia, Hungary, and Romania, all the way east to the Volga River. That was Kievan Rus. This population converted as one people to the Greek Orthodox Christianity in 988 under their ruler, Prince Vladimir, who himself converted in Crimea, uh, a church whole, uh, a very uh, sacred to both Russians and Ukrainians, still marks that very spot to this day. The territories which today are most often associated with uh, extreme Ukrainian nationalism and anti-Russian sentiment, particularly the territory known as Galicia uh, in northwestern Ukraine, uh, and also northern Bukovina, which is just to the south, uh, both in the Carpathians, uh, do not have, actually, this long anti-Russian history or sentiment, as is often claimed. These territories were founded and settled by Russians. And even the famously anti-Russian city of Lviv, or Lvov, depending if you're Ukrainian or Russian, uh, was founded by Kievan Rus rulers in the early 1200s. Ukrainian and Russians are one people, and we can go back as far as Herodotus' time, if you wish, 2,500 years ago, uh, and Herodotus himself lived and wrote, lived among and wrote among the people in that time. So the origins of the divisions between Ukrainians and Russians begins uh, with the Mongol conquest in the 1200s, and then really takes root in the 1300s when Galicia is conquered by Lithuania. And actually, Lithuania conquered more than Galicia. It conquered the territory somewhere to the east and north of Volinia, and to the south all of Bukovina, and even further south into central and southern Ukraine. Uh, 
1444, though, the Lithuanian monarchy had been taken over by the Polish monarchy because of intermarriage. And uh, Polish kings ruled Galicia until 1772. But it was the Polish land-owning aristocracy that changed things for the Ukrainian population there. They imposed a very brutal form of um, serfdom, particularly in terms of the use of the corvée, kind of uh, chain gang slave labor. Uh, and they also imposed a, a cultural religious persecution or oppression. Uh, the serfdom, so I'll get into that in a moment. Many Ukrainian peasants did flee from this uh, and uh, they went to the forests or the steppes and joined small societies of free armed men called Cossacks. Cossack is a, is a Turkish word meaning free man. Uh, and like in a lot of Slavic languages, there are a lot of Turkish words. Um, Cossacks existed, of course, both in the Ukraine and Russia. The Polish nobility, in order to tighten their control over the Ukrainian peasantry, created a new church. And this is a very important historical event relating to later on to Ukrainian fascism. This church was called the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, or the Uniate Church. Well, what it unified, really, was the Ukrainian peasantry with the papacy, uh, as well as with the Polish nobility. This church was established at the infamous Council of Brest in 1596. By forcing conversion to this new church under Catholic control, both the Catholic church and the Polish nobility extended their control over the, pop over the Ukrainian population. But this forced conversion, I think, should be seen as a kind of genocide over a once unified people. This religious uh, division is most is to this day mostly established in Galicia. Uh, that's where the Uniate Church is strongest. But in this way, Poland and the Roman Catholic Church were able to tear apart, tear uh, tear away. I'm sorry, a part of the Ukrainian people, and. A, in a piece of territory from the Ukrainian people, really forever. After 300 years, this church does become deeply entrenched in Galicia and Bukovina. And I want to stress that CIA documents, which now have been declassified uh, regarding Ukrainian, and I mean, there's extensive documents. A lot of them are, don't have a lot of information. But I think one thing that comes out, if you, if you read them, and you should read them, is that uh, almost so many of them uh, repeat over and over again that those most likely to support Ukrainian nationalist movements or Ukrainian fascism were unions, members of the Ukrainian, uh, this, uh, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. Um, this is not as true today as it was, say, 30, 40 years ago, but for the 20th century it was very true. In the 1660s, there were massive uprisings, though, by some Ukrainians in, in central Ukraine and eastern Ukraine uh, against the Polish nobility. Uh, these were led by Cossacks and their hetman leaders. And these territories actually fought to rejoin Russia and did so, uh, ultimately leaving just that northwestern portion in Poland, the Galicia Bukovina region. Uh, <clears throat> that's why that remained uh, unionist to this day. Uh, 
But ironically, this is hailed today by Ukrainian nationalist historians as a great moment in Ukrainian history, which it is, even though it provides, it, it is a precedent for what's going on in Eastern Ukraine today. Uh, a group of, of Ukrainians who do not want to be part of uh, this colonial, of this colonialism, uh, which then was a Poland today of the United States and the West. Poland was finally partitioned uh, and swallowed up by Prussia, Russia, and Austria in the late 1700s. And during the first partition in 1772, Galicia and Bukovina were taken over by Austria, the Austrian Empire. Austria's, so from 1772 to 1918, uh, 1919, uh, Galicia and uh, uh, Bukovina are part of the Austro Austrian Empire, later Austro-Hungarian Empire. Austria's ruling Habsburg monarchy were uh, the chief protectors of the Roman Catholic Church and the first practitioners of this of what became known as the German imperialist idea of Lebensraum. The Austrians relaxed the serfdom in Galicia and Bukovina, and in 1848, thanks to the revolutions of that year, completely abolished serfdom. But they increased the pressure on the Ukrainian population through religious persecution. Thousands of Jesuits were sent into these territories and even beyond the, ter the uh, Ukrainian territories into the Russian Empire with the goal of subverting the Orthodox Church uh, and uh, converting people to the, uh, to the Uniate Church. Um, so we can see here the beginnings of German imperialism in Galicia and beyond. In, in effect, the, or, the, um, the, Greek, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church served as a springboard for what became known as Drang nach Osten, or Germany's drive to the east. And this was a Habsburg policy before it was a Bismarckian policy or a Hitlerian policy. So Galicia was this beachhead for Austro-German expansionism to the east and the Union Church was the vehicle. By the way, the Habsburgs followed a similar policy in the Balkans as the Union Church converted Orthodox Serbs in the southern Austrian territories and expanded Croatia step by step by subsuming Orthodox populations under Roman Catholic Church and Austro-German control. Over the course of this long foreign occupation from the 1300s until World War I, Catholic rulers solidified their rule and their cultural influence. They preached hatred of Russians and of Russian Orthodoxy and of Jews and of Judaism. This is the origin of Ukrainian fascism. Instigated by German imperialism, but it does take a life of its own. The first great leader of Ukrainian nationalism in modern times was, not surprisingly, a Ukrainian Greek Catholic or Union cleric from Galicia uh, Semyon Petlurov. He tried to, in, in, in the 1890s, he tried, like the Jesuits before him, they tried to infiltrate Russian Orthodox seminaries in order to subvert it. Uh, he was eventually expelled and, and uh, revealed, and uh, he joined a, an organization called the Revolutionary Ukrainian Party, which became, a, which became his main vehicle for uh, promoting um, Ukrainian, national, extreme Ukrainian nationalism. 
Prior to 1914, though, he was just known as an ultra-nationalist journalist. But the Russian Revolution thrust him into power. He became the military leader of the uh, self-proclaimed Ukrainian Republic, which was declared in uh, November of 1917. And he even designed the Ukrainian flag, which is still the Ukrainian flag to this day. He proclaimed Ukrainian as the only official language in the Ukraine, banning all others, exactly what the government that came to power after 19, in 19, uh, 2014 did uh, recently. Uh, he, and like today's Ukrainian uh, nationalists, he condemned all, quote, foreign elements in the Ukraine, meaning Jews, Russians, and Poles. But in Galicia, in particular, uh, Poles and Jews actually made up the majority of the population, oddly enough. Uh, there were two million Jews, and there were two million Jews in the Ukraine, not to mention millions of Russians as well. So what, what to do? As military leader of the Ukrainian Republic, Petlura organized 1,200 pogroms from 1917 to 1920, killing 200,000 Jews in this period alone. And when the Russian and Jewish workers in Kiev rose up in revolt around the famous Arsenal factory, he murdered them, calling them foreign uh, invaders. Petlura, so this is, this is the background of today's Ukrainian nationalism. This is, this is the, these are the precedents and the heroes of their movement today. Uh, <clears throat> Petlura personally led a pogrom in my grandfather's town of Jashkova in central Ukraine. Uh, most of my grandfather's family, most of my family survived. Two were shot, but most survived uh, because we were able to purchase our lives. Jews without money were marched to the synagogue and burned alive. And this story was recounted to me by my grandfather's sister 33 years ago. We were, so you're lucky just to get robbed by Petlura. The Germans occupied the Ukraine briefly in 1918 and saw the possibility of using the Ukrainian regime uh, for their own expansionist uh, aspirations, but they lost the war and they had to retreat. The Soviets came back, Petlura's, and Petlura's uh, armies retreated into Poland. They made a deal with Pilsudski's government in Poland um, and in, in the Polish-Soviet War of 1920, Pilsudski's armies managed to retake a good portion of the western Ukraine. But they ended up just stabbing uh, the Ukrainians in the back, and Petlura's men were all arrested and sent to internment camps uh, in 1920-21. Um, <clears throat> Petlura himself ran away to Paris, where he was, uh, he got his, uh, he got his, what was coming to him from a, uh, a Jewish survivor from one of the pogroms who killed him in revenge for the, the murder of his parents. Um, <clears throat> thousands of Western Ukrainians fought, who had fought with Petlura were imprisoned in Poland, and they remained well organized. It's ironic that thanks to their imprisonment, uh, Petlura's men were able to organize themselves and shortly after Petlura's assassination, uh, the future fascist Ukrainian organization came out of these internment camps, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, or OUN. The OUN, or Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, would be the 
political organization of Ukrainian fascism during World War II. Uh, <clears throat> it had, it's known for having two branches, um, one led by a man named Melnik, the other by the infamous Stefan Bandera, who is today hailed as one of the great heroes of Ukrainian nationalism. What was the difference between these two factions? Not actually Bandera was really the man in charge, the, uh, was the head, was the leader. But the main difference was that Melnik and his faction were fine with the Nazis uh, making all the decisions, including decisions about the fate of whether there should be an Ukrainian state or not, or simply the Ukrainians live under German rule. Bandera did not agree with that. Bandera's faction did not agree with that. Their position was to uh, oppose Hitler and the Nazi regime if they did not allow the creation of a Ukrainian state. During the 1930s, of course, the Nazis supported the organization of Ukrainian nationalists. Um, the OUN carried out assassinate, uh, kill, murders of Polish political leaders, including the interior minister, uh, for which Bandera and uh, several other leaders of the OUN were arrested, uh, but they were all released after the Nazis invaded in September of 1939 and took over, the, took over Western Poland, or most of Poland. Uh, <clears throat> the, uh, from 1939 to 1941, the OUN was engaged in training and preparation for the, in, the invasion and occupation of the Soviet Union, particularly of the Ukrainian territories. I should add that uh, the Soviet Union occupied Galicia, Bukovina, Volhynia uh, between 1939 and 1941. So that was part of the agreement between uh, Germany and Soviet Union. Uh, <clears throat> one of the founders of the OUN, besides Bandera and Melnik, uh, who is an extraordinarily important figure in 20th century history, and you may not know him, uh, and he was a tremendously successful Ukrainian fascist, was uh, Mykola Lebed. Some of you may be familiar with him. He graduated from a Gestapo uh, training school and became the chief, and from 1939 to 41, became the chief torturer of political prisoners in Krakow, murdering Poles and Jews and Russians and whoever he came in contact. By early 1941, uh, the OUN also had recruited tens of thousands of soldiers uh, for military service. Uh, Several thousand of them would form two Ukrainian battalions, the Nachtigall and Roland battalions, who would be in the vanguard of the invasion of uh, Galicia and western Ukraine. Um, there were thousands of other OUN soldiers who were put into units known as the Nazi Hilfspolizei, or the uh, Nazi auxiliary police. I don't think we should forget about those thousands of OUN soldiers because their job was to help the Einsatzgruppen carry out the Holocaust in the Soviet Union. So even though they don't get much uh, attention, I think that they're uh, worth uh, paying some attention to because uh, the, the Einsatzgruppen tended not to want to kill the women and children. That was left up to the Nazi Hilf Hilfepolizei, the Ukrainian uh, auxiliary police. They also serve, also a certain number of Ukrainian OUN men were sent uh, to serve in the, as guards in the, in the new 
uh, death camps in Poland, Auschwitz, uh, Sobibor, uh, Treblinka, and so on and so on. Um, <clears throat> so these, this OUN played an enormous role in, in killing millions of people in, in World War II. Um, and all of the Ukrainian uh, units were always staffed with, uh, in, with a retinue of Ukrainian Greek Catholic clergy. Uh, this will come up in a moment. Um, the Naktagal Battalion captured Lviv, or Lviv on June 29, 1941. The next day, Bandera's deputy, Yaroslav Stetsko, announced on radio the independent state of the Ukraine without Nazi approval. Uh, he declared Bandera would be the president, Stetsko would be the prime minister. By the way, Stetsko is still hailed today as one of the great figures in uh, Ukrainian history by the Ukrainian nationalists uh, today. I think this is universally agreed upon by Ukrainian nationalists. And uh, Lebed as minister of the interior, good job for him. Stetsko then declared in this radio broadcast, quote, I support the destruction of the Jews and of bringing German methods of exterminating Jewry to Ukraine. Jews, we will lay your heads at Hitler's feet, unquote. Bandera, who we are told, is was who we are told today by the Ukrainian uh, nationalists is just a good, was just a good Ukrainian patriot, also made the following comments to the media. Quote, Jews constitute the most faithful support of the ruling Bolshevik regime and the vanguard of Moscovite imperialism in Ukraine. Uh, true to their word, the OUN battalions killed 12,000 Jews in just July and August 1941 alone. The Nazis, of course, did not support what the OUN was doing, and so by September, Bandera, Stetsko, and Levin were arrested and put in a very comfortable, uh, in a comfortable apartments in the Sachsenhausen concentration camp. Uh, even though it was a concentration camp, they were allowed to have telephones and, uh, and communication and come and go, actually. Um, but by 1943, the Germans began to lose the war, and that's when they changed their policies. As they were losing the war, they began to give the OUN more power. So they began, first they created the Ukrainian SS Division, uh, the 14th SS Division Galician, and then in 1944, the Nazis said, go ahead, take it, take the Ukraine, uh, as the Nazis were retreating. And the OUN, uh, all the OUN leaders were then released in 1944, and they established, uh, instead of the OUN, they replaced that with something called the Supreme Ukrainian Liberation Council, which would exist until the 1990s, by the way. Uh, this is the fascist government in exile uh, that the United States and the CIA supported all through, uh, right up until the 1990s. And its army would be called the UPA, or the Ukrainian Insurgent Army. Their first mission killed 10,000 Poles in Galicia to reduce the numbers. Remember, I told you, in Galicia, Poles and Jews made up the majority of the population. Well, they already took care of the Jews, now it's time to kill some Poles. Uh, in 80 separate operations on just one day, uh, they managed to kill 10,000 Poles. Soviet forces overran the UPA, and along with 250,000 other Galician Ukrainians, Bandera fled to the American and British occupation zones in Germany. They survived. But German imperialism would no longer be their employer. Now it fell to the United States and Britain. In, in 1998, there's a very interesting uh, 
history that was commissioned by the CIA, a secret history which was then declassified in 2006 actually, um, entitled, quote, Cold War Allies, colon, the origins of CIA relationships with Ukrainian nationals, unquote. The author was Kevin Ruffner. According to this report, the Strategic Service Unit, which was the precursor, it was in between the OSS and the CIA, precursor to the CIA, began to recruit, quote, espionage agents, unquote, from among Ukrainian fascists immediately after the war ended in 1945. I think this is an important point uh, from the DP camps. The report goes on to say that the SS, this is, now this is the CIA talking, not me. The SSU recruited them because the US, like its ally Great Britain, expected war to break out or to be created with the Soviet Union immediately. The US government wanted these agents for two purposes, according to the CIA report. One, covert operations in Soviet territory. <laughs> and two, paramilitary operations in Soviet territory. Now, this comes from the CIA's own in-house history. Within a few years also, 12,000 Ukrainian fascists would be imported to the United States despite their war crimes. So contrary to an anti-fascist, to the image of an anti-fascist American government at the end of World War II, who would never start the Cold War, mind you, uh, we instead see the CIA telling us in their own in-house history that yes, the Soviet image portrayed of the US as a Nazi-loving, imperialist aggressor, hell-bent on war with Russia, was in fact the truth. It also, this report also confirms what Soviet so-called propaganda was saying, that the USSR and the Warsaw Pact allies were on the receiving end of decades of US-sponsored covert military operations from the beginning of 1946 all the way to 1991. The United States, Britain, and Russia had signed the Moscow Agreement of 1943, promising to return, return war criminals to their countries where they committed their crimes. But the US and Britain violated this agreement from day one and didn't begin to uh, get concerned about war criminals until they had to fight, until they had to break <coughs> up Yugoslavia and arrest Serbs for war crimes. According to this CIA history, by 1946, the SSU had compiled extensive records on thousands of Ukrainian fascists, and you can read these, these are online actually, and were working hard to get them operational for terrorist attacks. The CIA report calls these terrorist attacks. From 1947 to 54, the CIA organized dozens of military raids by UPA uh, soldiers into Soviet territory. Meanwhile, CIA Director Alan Dulles and NSA Advisor George Kennan pushed to bring tens of ten, more thousands of Ukrainian fascists and other fascists into the United States for, quote, national security reasons. Chris Simpson, uh, a, a historian who has written a book called Blowback, uh, wrote something I think that's very interesting about this. He said, the, the, the U.S. with its rat lines brought war criminals into the United States, but they didn't just disappear into the population. Instead, they established new cells in their various ethnic communities. In, and not just in the United States, but in all countries. And they were headed by the same men who led the murder squads and survived and spread these movements. 
thanks to the United States and the CIA. And they are active to this day, and they pose a threat to the world. And in the end, they poisoned and Nazified the very political cultures of the host countries, too. I think that's truly blowback. That's exactly what Chris Simpson wanted to get across in that wonderful book he wrote many years ago. Until 1954, the Uniot priest, um, Ivan Hriniok, was the recognized leader by the CIA of Ukrainian fascism, of Ukrainian nationalism, of this Supreme Ukrainian Council. And on every CIA report about Hriniok that I've read, anyway, it usually says two things. One, quote, the subject is aware he is working with the CIA, unquote. And two, quote, could be the leader of an independent Ukraine in times of war with the USSR, unquote. Um, but at the end of 54, Hriniok simply resigned, and, um, and from that point on until the 1990s, the man who became the global leader of the Ukrainian fascist and ultra-nationalist movement was Nikola Lebed. Lebed was very well protected by the CIA. He lived in a very comfortable house in Yonkers in Westchester County, maybe near Gus Hall, I don't know. Uh, he was given several uh, CIA-funded companies. The most notable was Prolog, which was a global operation, which was, which received tens of millions of dollars at the very, at the very minimum every year from the CIA, and did all kinds of publishing, including uh, anti-Russian, anti-Soviet pu publishing. Um, what happened to Bandera and Stetsko? Bandera and Stetsko continued to have their operation based in Munich. And from 47 uh, until 52, they were supported by MI6. Uh, what was that? MI6, MI6 right. And um, their, uh, their operation, but their operations were continually getting uh, clobbered in, when, they went into, when they did their uh, ops into the Soviet Union. Of course, the British didn't know at the time it was Kim Philby who was filling in the Soviets about what was going on. Um, after 52, West Germany spy agency, agency, this BND, which was still headed at that time by Galen, the former Nazi intelligence uh, head, uh, took over and financed Bandera and Stetsko's operation until 1959. This is something that's not very well known, that West Germany continued to sponsor fascist operations against the Soviet Union in the 1950s. Um, <clears throat> at that uh, at that point, the CIA was willing to give Bandera another try in 59, but just before he was to leave for Washington, he was captured by a KGB guy and killed. They sprayed cyanide in his face and he died. Um, <clears throat> so that was the end of Bandera and Stetsko. Um, Levin went on to become a major figure in the Republican Party. He was, a, uh, he was also very close to the Democrats in the 1970s. He was a close friend and confidant of Zbigniew Brzezinski. Uh, he, was a, he was an advisor to Zbigniew Brzezinski and a very close friend with Jimmy Carter, by the way. A Nazi. Jimmy Carter, oh, he's such a humanitarian. He's friends with Nazis. Come on. Uh, Ronald Reagan and George Bush, of course, were, were good friends as well. And he was financed regularly right up until 1992 when he was no longer needed. But by the time Lebed died in 1998, he was, he was able to take great satisfaction in seeing that his success, the new generation of neo-fascist Ukrainian unit 
forces had taken his place. So, for example, in 1991, Levitt was able to meet with the Social National Party, which was founded by, among others, Ole Tienbuk. Uh, by the way, at that time, that party today is called Svoboda. But at that time, it was called the Social National Party. What does that mean? It means National Socialists, right? Uh, its symbols were swastika. Um, today, of course, I said the party is called Svoboda. It's dropped its Nazi symbols. But its youth organization has, in fact, continued the racist rhetoric and is uh, has, has spun off a whole series of paramilitary neo-Nazi organizations, including the uh, most recent, uh, the most very well-known uh, neo-Nazi uh, uh, battalion, the Azov Battalion, which uh, is therefore actually a spin-off of Svoboda's youth organization, um, and uh, now is, is based in Mariupol and is on the front lines fighting uh, against uh, Novaya Russia, uh, against the uh, Eastern Ukrainian Russian, uh, and Russian population there. Um, and, um, but, you know, there's such a proliferation now that have come about in, in, the, in the last 10 years of, of neo-Nazi or uh, paramilitary groups, youth organizations, that no one, and Svoboda doesn't want, uh, Svoboda uh, is, I mean, Svoboda is a very dishonest and dangerous organization, I think we can agree. Uh, the fact that it uh, pretends to be a mainstream uh, and anti-fascist organization is just not true, uh, based on what we know about all of the spin-offs from this, uh, from this party. Now, of course, uh, Svoboda has lost uh, quite a bit as a result of the recent elections in two, late 2014, they went from having 37 delegates in the Rada, which was about 11%, to now having only six. But the, the, the reality is, is that there's so many ultra-nationalist political organizations vying for support in the Ukraine today that uh, there's no one single one that is able to, uh, to become the center of this, uh, of this movement, which is uh, the, which is really an adjunct to the popular face of the, um, of the Poroshenko regime. Um, so what we have, and then the rest of the last few years is, I don't even have to talk about, perhaps the other speaker will talk about. It. I mean, we know uh, Victoria Nuland has, uh, has mentioned, and uh, <coughs> Ambassador Piat has mentioned, that the US and CIA spent $4 billion in helping the Maidan protesters overthrow uh, the, the last democratically elected president of the Ukraine, Yan Yanukovych. Uh, what they have done is they have destroyed any possibility of any kind of workable, democratically elected, uh, unified Ukraine. Humpty Dumpty has fallen, and he's not going to be put back together. And so now the question is, what, what's next? Partition seems to be the only solution. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.